This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. Today, we head to a new continent for the podcast, and I couldn't be more excited to learn about it. If you're like me, then your knowledge of Africa consists of history beginning in 1492. But I can assure you that this is another truly ancient land with another truly ancient story to tell. Please make sure you listen to the very end of this episode for an important message about Anchor supporting listeners. But before we begin, if you want another show that goes into great depth into meaningful history like Fortune's Wheel podcast does, then the Forgotten Wars podcast might be for you. The Forgotten Wars podcast tells the story of the South African War of 1899 to 1902, also known as the Anglo-Boer War. The Forgotten Wars podcast first season tells the story of the Anglo-Boer War in the context of many preceding conflicts in Southern Africa for over the course of more than 40 episodes. So while you're waiting for the next episode of Fortune's Wheel to drop, check out the Forgotten Wars podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and almost any anywhere podcasts are provided. All right, so off to today's episode, episode 62, entitled Across the Sahara. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In the 9th century, a man by the name of Muhammad ibn Musa al-Khwarizmi never traveled the stretches of the earth, but he was but one solitary member of a vast story unfolding across the medieval world, a prequel of things to come. He only tangentially knew it at the moment, but he was in the midst of forming a map of the latitudes and longitudes for over 2,400 cities and landmarks around the medieval world, according to the website historyofislam.com. This formed, according to that website, quote-unquote, the basis for a world map. Al-Khwarizmi died in 847, but his work during the previous decades provided an incalculable service to all of mankind, much less the fledgling yet incredibly powerful, wealthy, and influential Islamic caliphates in just its first two centuries of existence. Al-Khwarizmi was a scholar, a philosopher, a translator, The man kind of did everything, to be honest. In addition to these, he is most known for his mathematics work. In fact, not only did his very name, Al-Khwarizmi, lend itself to a staple of mathematics to this very day, the algorithm, but his most important work, translated in English as the Compendious Book of Calculation by Completion and Balancing. Yeah, that was the title of it. Was actually called Al-Kitab al-Muqtasar fi hisab al-Jabr wal-Muqabala. For you keen listeners out there, you might have heard a specific word in there, al-Jabr. This, this same man, a man who headed the prestigious House of Wisdom in Baghdad, which seems to me like the Muslim equivalent to holding Aristotle's old position in the academy. Well, this guy also invented, there it was, algebra, which is pretty much a direct steal into English from Arabic. Though Al-Khwarizmi completed this work in 825, his work wasn't translated into Latin for another 300 years, but that's a story for another time. He introduced and explained the zero to the world as well. 
He also made extensive progress in blending Indian mathematics into Arabic, a huge endeavor, not for the faint of heart in those days, as the Indian mathematicians were also in a league of their own. He also codified the Arabic numeric system as superior to the Roman one, replacing it across the board throughout the Islamic world. And we know where it went from there. So, But he didn't stop there. He was also a man who, in an effort to boost the accuracy of the burgeoning trade networks Islam was making on both sides of the Tropic of Cancer, invented something you and I use on a daily basis today. The decimal system. Al-Khwarizmi's gifts to humanity simply cannot be understated. Suffice it to say that this Al-Khwarizmi fellow was a mind set apart from his peers, and it was under his leadership that the famous House of Wisdom truly exploded onto the medieval intellectual scene and became a garden for future generations of Muslim scholars to usher in the Islamic Golden Age. But Al-Khwarizmi, again, merely collected information and did something with it. That's it. This hardly diminishes his work, though, quite the contrary. However, it wasn't his feet making contact with the Indian subcontinent. It wasn't his hands shaking Greek and Rus ones in Constantinople. It wasn't his eyes squinting in the sweltering heat and buffeting sands of the Sahara Desert. In the year 833, he published his famous Kitab Surat Alard, or aptly titled, Picture of the Earth. And he couldn't have done it without the work of these Muslim travelers who risked life and limb with every step and encounter to explore the unknown and document its existence. Countless generations used Al-Khwarizmi's text as a basis for the travels, but for their travels. But they all knew that if they were going to push beyond the boundaries of the known world, they would need to keep their own journals and add to the knowledge of the great Al-Khwarizmi. And it was in Picture of the Earth that we find the very first mention of the word Ghana. And it was this one word with details about its approximate location that drove innumerable Muslim merchants and explorers to head south. Well, southwest, actually, into the dreaded Sahara Desert, which has for millennia acted somewhat as a barrier between sub-Saharan Africa and, of course, northern Africa. This desert spans nearly the distance between Los Angeles and New York City, and as wide as Minneapolis to San Antonio. Or for my Eastern Hemisphere listeners, that's about as long as the distance between London to Baghdad, and as wide as London to Rome. The Sahara Desert is mind-bogglingly huge. And Al-Khwarizmi's writings would inspire others to make the treacherous journey to the far southwest of the known world, to seek the desert winds of the Sahara for weeks and even months on end, to eventually pierce the sand dunes and parched rocky mountain ranges, only to emerge in a starkly contrasting lush environment, known only to merchants and slavers for centuries. To be sure, the Sahara acted as a barrier protecting the people of West Africa, the ancestors of those who currently inhabit the nations of Mauritania, Senegal, Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, Niger, and Nigeria, as well as Togo, excuse me. This translates to roughly 1.9 million square miles, or 5.4 million square kilometers, and has around 80 million more people than the United States does today, as of 2018. 
and it has at least one truly enormous metropolitan area today, that of Lagos, Nigeria, hosting over 8 million people. For perspective, Lagos has less than 1 million fewer residents than both New York City and London. Well, of course, a thousand years ago, this was hardly the case. These hundreds of millions of people simply didn't exist yet. And to be fair, it simply didn't develop the infrastructure for such growth for several centuries more. Well, much like Europe, to be honest. The, metropol- the, the metropolis excuse me, of the age were Cordoba and Constantinople in the 10th and 11th centuries. So all of West Africa and Europe were both very much backwaters in comparison. But West Africa did, however, support an incredibly interesting and developed community, and this came from a vast amount of wealth that flowed into and out of the region. And by the time Al-Khwarizmi's picture of the earth was written and disseminated and passed around the Islamic world, West Africa had firmly established its value to the larger world. Unfortunately, it took a while for the larger world to even notice it. As these Muslim merchants spread the word, more and more trekked across the desert. Communities sprang up along the way, many of them no more than outposts on an otherwise desolate path to the ends of the world. Desert dwellers had already existed since time immemorial, but more of these roaming villages began to populate the area, which could certainly offer a measure of safety, as bandits wouldn't necessarily hijack a caravan in a fairly populated area. They simply wouldn't get very far. But on the other hand, bandits might also seek more loot by the increased traffic these ancient trade routes began to swell with. That was the risk each side of the law took when crossing the Sahara. Piracy didn't only exist on the high seas. According to Patricia and Frederick McKissick's foundational book about West African history entitled The Royal Kingdoms of Ghana, Mali, and Songhai, Life in Medieval Africa, From the Arabian Peninsula to the borders of Ghana was a journey of no less than 40 days. I have for you a series of rather lengthy quotes from the text, but it sums this journey up far better than I could, so I'm going to leave it to them. They write, quote, Generally, several merchants pooled their resources to form a caravan. There was safety in numbers, too. On the day of departure, as many as a hundred camels were loaded with merchandise and supplies. An official made a strict accounting of all the goods for tax purposes. Then each merchant and his entourage assembled and were assigned their positions within the caravan. Finally, when all the merchants, slaves, bodyguards, scholars, ambassadors, poets, and musicians had mounted their camels, the overland journey began. It's astounding. Oh, end quote, excuse me. It's astounding the amount of preparation that goes into a caravan. As, as the McKissicks say, quote, the makeup of a long-distance caravan was as complex as it was colorful, end quote. And everything orbited one simple beast of burden. The very thing, as the authors put it, quote-unquote, makes trans-Saharan travel possible. And that was the camel. The McKissicks write, quote, the camel was to the Berbers what the bison was to the Native Americans. The animal provided transportation, milk, wool, hides, and meat, end quote. Drinking over 20 gallons of water in a single visit to the waterhole, these animals also taught the Saharan travelers just how to survive in the desert. 
Their double row of eyelashes taught travelers the value of covering the eyes with thin fabric just barely see-through when the winds picked up. Thick hair created a dense covering across the opening of the camel's ears, worse than your grandfather's, I'd wager, which showed the importance of covering all of the openings on the body, which lends itself to an explanation as to why these desert dwellers even today are nearly always covered, even under the Sahara sun. And finally, nostrils that can close serves two purposes, both as a sand filter and as a way to keep precious evaporation from happening through its wet nostrils. But, say the McKissicks, quote, that's where the praise for the camel ends. <laughs> they are famous, and I find this funny, by the way, they are famous for being ill-tempered and make traveling in a caravan very difficult. They bite, spit, kick, run away, or refuse to move. Famously stubborn, camels cannot be handled by just anybody, so caravan leaders usually hired a full-time camelier and crew to manage them. End quote. A full-time camelier. Honestly, I LOL'd way too hard at that one. All right, back to the McKissicks. They write, quote, There were four major trade routes that the caravans coming from the east could have traveled. Following an experienced guide, the caravan made its way through ever-changing Sahara sands, clocking about three miles an hour, stopping only to observe the required prayer periods. Traders wore charms or talismans to ward off evil spirits that might bring a sandstorm, a dried well, a plague among the camels, a disagreement among, f among the fellow travelers, anything that might endanger the safety of the whole caravan. Mile after mile, day after day, the caravan pushed west and then south. Occasionally, they must have been greeted by a lizard, a scorpion, or a snake, but no other life could endure the desert. The caravan moved from one oasis to another before the sun rose too high and temperatures soared to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. During the hot part of the day, the travelers rested at Berber Run Caravanserai, which, like our modern day road, which was much like our modern day rest stops. Sometimes the caravan moved a few more miles at night by using the stars as their guide. More often, everyone slept while guards stood watch for thieves, which were a real threat. But once a caravan reached the borders of Ghana, they were safe, for the king's soldiers guarded safe passage to all visitors. End quote. But what would they come to? as they approached a large town or city. See, to the south of the Sahara lies a region called the Sahel. The Sahel is translated to the shores from its original Arabic. It's an apt term used to reference the area where the dry, dusty wasteland of the Earth's largest hot desert slowly but surely fades away and welcomes a more lush terrain with each passing day. From desert to forest wasn't some overnight change, however. The Sahel was hundreds of miles wide from north to south, and it stretches from the Atlantic Ocean in the west to the Persian Gulf in the east. It's certainly dwarfed in comparison to the magnificent Sahara, but in its defense, it does reach one-third of the mighty desert's width at several points. It was most likely at the northernmost tip of the Sahel that the very first Muslims, no doubt traveling merchants, you know, crisscrossing the Sahara, encountered the darker-skinned Africans from West Africa. 
This contact was made about the same time that the Umayyad dynasty came back from the dead, only this time 3,000 miles away from Damascus, up in Cordoba. These Muslim merchants set up nearby towns and outposts from known areas where these sub-Saharan Africans lived, and they must have seemed quite primitive to these Arabs, at least through their own eyes, because they were quite secretive, and they stubbornly insisted upon a practice called silent bartering. Silent bartering on its surface seemed quite peculiar, as it seems like an age-old understanding that trade works best when two people are, you know, face-to-face, and each party reaches an amicable agreement. Well, the people of West Africa had their ideas. See, to the outsiders, the people we've come to call Ghanaians were very protective of their wares. Though salt mines, like that in Tagaza, well into the Sahara Desert, were well known, copper and iron mines were a bit more guarded. However, gold mines were a national secret. But near salt mines was where silent bartering was used mostly, as salt mines were in the north. So in this, we have the reason why silent bartering became a thing when the Muslims arrived, though truth be told, Berbers, before the Muslims, were also in scant contact with the people of the Empire of Ghana. So there most certainly was the practice with them as well. See, Muslims would set their wares out at a predetermined location and just walk away. And the next morning, they would come back to their goods, all piled up nicely in stacks on the dry ground. What they would see would be a certain amount of gold, copper, iron, salt, or whatever else the secretive Ghanaians have left. They would leave each thing in stacks in front of the outsider's things, so an equal trade would be proposed. If the Muslim merchants were okay with what has been left as a proposal for a trade, they would simply take the stacks that they agreed with, leaving their goods for the Ghanaians, who would come back later and collect what was left. However, if they disagreed, they would leave and not touch a thing. And then they'd try again the next day. This would go on until a deal was reached, but they would never lay eyes on each other. This kind of trading is so alien to us today that it's hard to wrap our heads around it. But the level of sophistication and the amount of trust must have been incredible, must have taken the better part of centuries to develop. And it was all because if you wanted to do business with the empire of Ghana, then you played by their rules, period. But what was life behind the silent barter? This, again, was an ancient land, a truly ancient land. When one traveled from the blistering Sahara into the Sahel, one was greeted with low-growing vegetation, a diversity of animal life simply not seen back north in the desert, and rivers as big as they come. It was a land unlike almost any other in the medieval European worldview. Vast deserts, treacherous mountain ranges, stormy seas, bitterly frigid tundras, rolling grasslands, fertile river valleys, marshlands and swamps, ancient, wind-blown, abandoned cities reminiscent of empires past, and everything in between were in no short supply in Europe, Western Asia, the Mediterranean region, and the Middle East. But West Africa was a strange, strange land indeed for folks of a thousand years ago. This was a land of unparalleled diversity in its geologic features, such as mountains and peculiar rain cycles and giant complex river systems, all the way to its biological features, such as strange new plant life like the aloe vera 
and lemongrass plants, and animal life like the pygmy hippopotamus, the Niger stingray, the West African lungfish, and the bush baby. Through these river flats and forests, denser, denser with every southbound step, the waterways grew muddier and the atmosphere grew thicker. The further west you traveled from here, the higher the terrain climbed as well, and soon you would find yourselves in dangerous, high-altitude jungles. But you would soon emerge on the Atlantic shores, breathing in its salty air. And it would be these shores that would be used to facilitate the Atlantic slave trade. But that was still about 600 years away, at least. Unfortunately, there was already a thriving slave trade going on around this vast and varied landscape of West Africa. Ghana became what it was by the 10th and 11th centuries because of many factors, but no factor held more weight than that of free labor. Gold, copper, iron, salt, these were backbreaking jobs in absolutely deadly conditions. And of these, salt mines seemed to be the worst. In the city of Tagaza, the northernmost Ghanaian city, which lay along a trade route almost halfway between the Ghanaian city of Kumbasale and the Berber city of Sijilmasa near the Atlas Mountains in the north. The McKissicks write, quote, West Africa got most of its salt from Tagaza, a city located in the Sahara Desert. Being assigned to work in Tagaza salt mines was a death sentence, according to a description left by a traveler who spent only a day and night there. Tagaza was an unattractive village with the curious feature that its houses and mosques are built of blocks of salt, roofed with camel skins. There are no trees there, nothing but sand, end quote. But they continued with, quote, Tagaza's only permanent residents were slaves. Slavery existed in many West African cultures, and contact with the Islamic world made slaves more valuable as a source of wealth. The slaves at Tagaza were either captives from other groups or criminals who were forced to work in the mines. Life in the salt mines was so dismal that overseers were assigned only two-month terms and then transferred. The soil was spoiled and supported no crops or natural vegetation. Water was scarce. Even wells were briny. Everything had to be brought in or the workers died. These slaves lived terrible lives, a combination of human cruelty and harsh conditions. End quote. So in addition to slavery, the Empire of Ghana was able to move beyond the Stone Age centuries before when they developed the knowledge of using iron ore to its advantage. This revolutionized everything from warfare to agricultural practices. Not only did they quickly become a force in the region to be reckoned with on the battlefield, but they were also able to exp exponentially increase the yield of their farms. This, of course, allowed a boom in population, which spurred new and novel ways to expand its influence and trade networks. Along the way, Berbers made the contact, as mentioned earlier. Then the Muslims. And by the 11th century, the Empire of Ghana had cemented its hold on the metals, precious metals, salt, and slave commodities. Its enhanced agricultural practices produced just enough surplus to allow population rise, which in turn resulted in more localities being established. And over the course of a few centuries, these localities grew into villages and towns, all orbiting certain larger population centers where a ruler would naturally arise. 
These rulers would oversee specific gold mines or salt mines and whatnot. And what inevitably happens in human history is war erupts from time to time over these resources. These wars, of course, have winners and losers, and these losers are often dealt with in one of three ways. Death, subjugation, or enslavement. Unfortunately, our human story can be boiled down in such a sad and simplistic way, though I choose to also consider other factors as well. My point here is to show that West Africa was no backwards place populated by a primitive people who never coalesced into complex and hierarchical structures beyond the village level. On the contrary, West Africa, and specifically the Empire of Ghana by the 11th century, had evolved in much the same ways as other places around the world, from the great white north of Norway and Sweden to the blistering heat of the upper Nile River Valley. Today, the nation of Ghana is not the same as what we refer to as the Empire of Ghana of a thousand plus years ago. This is a very important uh, a very important fact, a very important thing that we need to distinguish between. And this comes from basically a linguistic nuance. See, when Muslim chroniclers first approached the outskirts of the empire, they referred to it as Ghana, much as Al-Khwarizmi did in the 800s in Picture of the Earth. But that came from an error in translation, or at least a misuse of words. Ghana was simply a soninke term that meant warlord or warrior king. So Ghana wasn't the name of the empire. It was simply the title of its ruler, or the title of king around the empire, which we'll get to in a little bit here. In fact, the people of the empire actually called the, the nation Wagadu, but to Muslim chroniclers, the name never caught on after Al-Khwarizmi carved it in parchment. Ever since, the world has referred to this empire as Ghana, which is a source of frustration for folks like you and me who are trying to wrap our heads around this past. So again, to concrete this idea into our narrative of the Middle Ages on the podcast, let me just say this, and then we can move on. The modern nation of Ghana is not the same as the medieval empire of Ghana. Yet, due to historians hanging on to the name, we will still refer to it as Ghana for clarity's sake. So regardless, today, Ghana is a north-south-oriented country that borders the rather large Gulf of Guinea to the south. However, the empire of Ghana never reached any coast, though its influence certainly spread to those areas. Officially, though, its boundaries were well inside West Africa. And I forgot to mention where its heart was earlier in the podcast when I was listing modern-day nations. Its heart was actually located in the modern nation of Mali. So I want to make sure I I corrected myself from earlier. So its medieval heart took up the whole of modern-day Burkina Faso and much of southern Mali, but it stretched out in all directions like a firework to take up parts of the Ivory Coast, Ghana, Benin, Nigeria, and Niger. It controlled major river systems in the region as well, which were the Senegal River, the impressively large Niger River, and the Volta River system. It even had outposts along the Bennu River to the empire's southeast in modern-day Nigeria, and and evidence is being uncovered every day, it seems, that there were also major trade routes connecting West Africa to as far south as modern-day South Africa and Zimbabwe. These rivers would provide exactly what the rivers in Kievan Rus territory did for the Vikings to move their goods at insanely fast rates of transfer for the time period, 
and none more than the magnificent Niger River, which began in the high jungles in the southwest of the empire, flowed northeast through the Sahel, and even into the desert flatlands of the southern Sahara Desert. But it takes an immediate right turn and bends back southeast, back toward the Sahel, and then into the forests of inner Nigeria, and finally off to the coast, but not before a little fork in the road allowing immediate access to that Bennu River, which ran straight east from there. So yeah, the, the Niger was the main artery that allowed the gold mines of the west to link up to the salt mines in the north and east with swiftness and, swiftness and ease, and the river ran right by one major city in the middle of Ghana. This city was called Kumba Saleh, and it was believed to have been the seat of the Ghana, or warrior king, of the entire empire. The McKissicks referred to an 11th century Muslim chronicler named al-Bakri, who reported 15,000 people by the year 1100, but that's probably a vast understatement with evidence that has come to the surface since, and along with other chroniclers. And something peculiar about the empire was that it broke down to almost an inner city slash suburb type of relationship, both inside the empire's boundaries and outside. For instance, the western city of Autogast had its own king, but it lay well within the empire's borders. In fact, it was a major, uh, I suppose, port along the much-used commercial highway leading up to Sijomasa and then on to Fez in modern-day Morocco. Timbuktu was a town to the east of Kumbasale along the Niger River, and by the year 1000, it was still small, but growing quickly. Follow the Niger further east and you'll come across another small outpost that would become another major hub of activity in just a couple centuries called Gao. South of Timbuktu was Jenna, Tadmecca to the northeast, Agadiz in the far east, Walata out west near Autogast. The point here is to show that most of these cities had regional leaders, full-fledged kings. But as the McKissicks say, quote, so long as they paid tribute to Kumbasale, that is, the local royalty were left alone to carry on their traditional ways of life under their own laws and customs. However, later the authors state in no uncertain terms that, quote, the king's authority was absolute. His word was first and final. He issued pardons, negotiated peace treaties, approved royal marriages, bestowed honors, and appointed governors. No one dared contradict or challenge him, at least not publicly, including his many wives. Behind the scenes, he relied upon a team of judges, governors, generals, and counselors to provide him with information so he could approve a trade agreement that would benefit the entire empire or handle a dispute between farmers. End quote. So it doesn't sound like the empire of Ghana was too different than, say, 11th century France in terms of the power of the local ruler, except that by that time, France's king was more or less neutered in many regards. But one way it stood out from almost everywhere else in the European and Islamic worldviews was the power of its women. Women held significantly more political power in medieval Ghana. The very lineage of the king was, evidence shows, based on his mother's side. So the more prominent his mother's line was, the more prestige and influence he could swing around to bolster his claims and subsequently build more wealth through the gold, copper, iron, slave, and salt trades. 
And to be clear, the kings of medieval Ghana were insanely wealthy by any standards. Al-Kati documented a king named Kanisa Ai, who was as wealthy as or even wealthier than the Egyptian pharaohs of old. The McKissicks describe this account in more detail. They say, According to Al-Kati, this king owned 10,000 horses, and each one slept on a mattress of its own, had silken rope for a halter, and lived in a stable that was as spotless as the king's palace. Each steed had its own copper urinal and three body servants to tend to its needs around the clock. End quote. The authors continued later, the king's attendants, quote, bathed and dressed him, the king, in colorful robes made of its finest cloth, gold necklaces, bracelets, and rings, topping it off with the symbol of the king's authority, a turban also decorated in gold. Royal Deba drums announced the arrival of the king and his entourage. The court griot, which we will talk about in more detail in the next episode about what a griot is, but the court griot recited the monarch's many titles, honors, and achievements for the benefit of visitors who came to pay homage. Subjects and visitors were expected to bow before him and sprinkle dust on their heads as a sign of respect. Muslims were excused because of their religious beliefs, but they nodded their heads or clapped their hands to show respect. End quote. The king, again, held firm control over the empire, and as long as local kings paid him tribute, he would afford them military and economic protection. Economic protection would come in the form of the Ghana's overall control over the flow of goods in and out of individual cities. And military protection would come in the form of over 200,000 soldiers that made up his standing army, something not exactly common in the Middle Ages. These soldiers were highly paid and did nothing but train for battle. They wore a specific uniform and carried spears, daggers, and swords, all made of iron. But they were also highly trained to use the wooden club and highly trained in archery. There was even a Varangian guard-type unit of elite warriors who were subservient to the king and the king alone. But see, Islam, even in its first century of existence, had proven one thing beyond a shadow of a doubt. No army could stand for long against its relentless spread. And as elite as the training was for these soldiers, as deadly as their weapons were, and as ready as they may have been at any given moment to mobilize, the people of West Africa were vulnerable. They were as vulnerable as the people of Mecca in the 620s, as vulnerable as those Bedouins crisscrossing the Arabian desert, as vulnerable as the locally powerful Berber tribes across the North African coasts, as vulnerable as the Christian Iberian kingdoms, and as vulnerable as even the mighty Eastern Roman Empire. It's often accepted, but then quickly dismissed, that Islam spread rapidly in its first century or two. But it cannot be understated that its spread was violent and it was lightning fast. And it eventually spread into the empire of Ghana and through throughout West Africa, essentially. But unlike most other places, it was done through slowly injecting itself into the area first, almost as if not to spook the sleeping lion it had approached. West Africa was an unknown. No one truly knew how vast this region was for a century or more at least. Much of West Africa was a closely guarded secret, and not many outsiders did much more than pierce its epidermis. 
that is, those lands in the Sahel. But Islam in those days knew but one direction. Forward. It simply moved forward, and whatever was in its way would eventually succumb to it. Much of the time at the pointy end of a sword or dagger. The word Islam translates to submission at its core. When an idea like submission is deified, well, it only takes one believer to weaponize it. The people of West Africa, the beautiful and complex and unique Saninke people, they found this out eventually, as if it were inevitable. And more on this in the next episode, but I'll say that the Saninke people of Wagadu, that is, the Empire of Ghana, had an incredibly rich oral tradition driven by master storytellers called griots, and the word began to spread like wildfire about the wave of submission heading their way. These ideas were spread by those who fled because at a certain point, Muslim men punched a figurative hole in the fabric of Wagadu, and the griots got to work, as they did, on documenting this change and the original thoughts on it. Song of the Turtle is an ancient griot song passed down for more than 1,100 years now. And there's a reason stories and poems like this have survived all these years. It's that West Africans haven't lost their original identity, and they were cognizant of the idea that their collective cultural memory was worth preserving. The McKissicks quote a bit of this, quote a bit of this poem, and it, well, I'll leave it for you to reflect on and make sense of. It says, We lived in freedom before man appeared. Our world was undisturbed. One day followed the other joyfully. Dissent was never heard. Then man broke into our forest with cunning and belligerence. He pursues us with greed and envy. Our freedom vanished. It's worth noting that these feelings, these very palpable and heartbreaking sentiments, had entered the West African oral tradition centuries before Europeans arrived on its western and southern shores and began its shameful practice of buying slaves from its interior, shipping them on horrendous conditions across the world and selling them in markets around the New World. Centuries before. Losing freedom and becoming enslaved isn't unique to West Africa, though the thought is understandable today as we're still trying our best, well, those rational-minded and compassionate enough to attempt it, to come to grips with its awful legacy. As we've said on the podcast many times before, the Vikings enslaved the Irish, Anglo-Saxons, the French, and the Slavs at alarming rates. Muslims were no different, enslaving Persians, Berbers, Iberian Christians, Slavs, and even Greeks. And now we've learned that West Africans were also deeply involved in enslaving their own people and selling them abroad as well. On the next episode, we take a look inside the Empire of Ghana and set up the area for future seasons of the podcast. West Africa, in my opinion, is worth the look. It's fascinating to learn about this area and its people, and I hope you feel the same. It's time West Africa takes its place, in my own humble opinion, at the table of medieval studies in the Western world. And I promise you that time will tell on its importance leading up to the end of this podcast stated goals of the earliest years of the Renaissance and the Age of Exploration.
All right, just a quick note about Anchor supporting listener status here and the bonus episodes that came with it. Listen, I truly appreciate those who became Anchor supporting listeners for those few months, but I've decided against using that. At the end of the day, I'm happy to push this content out to those who appreciate learning about our shared medieval history, but a 50 cent paywall for specific content just wasn't worth the effort. I'm just humbled and excited to be able to share what I've been learning about lately with you all. Now, that said, we still have a Patreon group open for those who want more content. The Patreon content was more in-depth content than the Anchor Supporting Listeners was anyway, and it's a way for me to, you know, to be quite honest, pay for this whole thing. I know it's another paywall, but I feel like I'm offering different content on the Patreon that can coincide with what we're learning on this public part of the podcast. But buying books, research materials, it's not free. And it's starting to really, really add up. Um, So please, if you believe in what's happening here, just please consider supporting the show on Patreon. And you'll also be treated, as I said, to that extra content that's just as carefully researched and produced as what you hear on these public episodes. Our current Patreon series is on Poland's rise to prominence in the 11th century. And to be honest, I'm, I'm very proud of it. So I hope you'll consider checking it out. Okay, so enough with the public service announcements. Suffice to say that there's no more paywall for these public episodes, and if you're searching for more content, please consider again joining our awesome Patreon group. Catch us on the next episode when we continue our tale of how history continues to intertwine itself. We'll move northward into the Maghreb and beyond eventually, but we're hardly finished with our exploration of West Africa, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time. Until next time.